And we'll take your Bibles this morning and turn to Genesis, the book of Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. Again, I, I just, I, I can't tell you how good it is to be back home. We had a tremendous time uh, being over there and, and uh, working with so many churches and Christians. And, and it's just, it's amazing uh, to see what, honestly, what real Christianity is because they have nothing, you know, uh, for the most part. They, they don't have everything given to them. They don't have nice big church buildings that are built for them and all of these other things. They have nothing except they have Christ. And what they have is real. And it's exciting to see that in so many different places. And uh, I don't even know how to estimate how many churches would be like in Moldova, but um, there's, there's probably a church for every three or four villages, you know, and, and there's just tons and tons of these little villages everywhere. There's, there's a, a decent number of churches in Romania, not all of them good, um, but it's exciting to see uh, people worshiping God uh, in a different place. And you know, the, the thing about it too is it's, um, it's the fact that, that God can understand prayer, that God can understand worship in any language, you know, and, uh, and it means just as much to him as hearing it in English or, or any other language, you know. Uh, it means just as much to him coming from people all the way across the world, and uh, it's exciting, it's exciting. But I'm glad to be home. It is very nice to be able to preach in English where everybody understands you and not have to uh, hear it through a translator and all of that stuff. But Genesis chapter 19, I actually want to read this passage first before we get into anything this morning just to kind of give you some background on what we're talking about. But you know the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, Abraham and Lot kind of came to this separation point there. Uh, cattle were starting to mix, their, uh, their animals were starting to mix together, which, I mean, basically, that's how you determined your wealth. It was not in basically how much money you had, but how, many, how much land and how many animals and all of those things. And so uh, Lot and Abraham's um, uh, shepherds were fighting against each other, and a lot of different things were going on. So they kind of came to the conclusion, look, we need to separate. And Abraham told Lot, you pick what you want. And Lot looked out and he saw Sodom and how well watered the plains were and all of that. And so he chose that, uh, even though it was not a good place to be. Uh, he looked at what he could have wealth-wise and he chose Sodom. And obviously, everything that we do has consequences. And that had a consequence for Lot. He got involved in the city of Sodom. And Sodom was just a very wicked place. And Long story short, Abraham prayed that God would save the city if he could find 100 righteous. Couldn't find 100. How about 50? Okay, 50. Couldn't find 50. How about 20? Couldn't find 20. How about 10? Couldn't even find 10 righteous in there. So God told Abraham, you go tell Lot, he better get out of that city or he's going to be destroyed with it. So he went and told him. And Lot decided that he was going to leave, but he could not get his family to come with him. He, he barely got his wife. Uh, some of his kids stayed in the city of Sodom, and they got out. And so we come to verse number 15, in Genesis chapter 19 and verse number 15. And when the morning arose, then the angels, and the angels were sent there to try to get Lot out of the city. When the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him. And they brought him forth and set him without the city. In other words, Lot had become so connected to this wicked city 
that even though he knew the entire place was going to be destroyed and he better get out, he could not make himself leave. So the angels physically grabbed them by the hands and drugged them out of the city. And it came to pass, verse 17, when they had brought them forth, that he said, Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plains. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. And Lot said unto them, Oh, not so, my lord. Behold, now thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. Behold, now this city is near to flee unto, and it's a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. Is, is it not a little one, and my soul shall live? And he said unto him, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing, also that I will not overthrow this city for the, for the which thou hast spoken. In other words, what's happening here is they told him, you better get away to the mountain. He said, I, I can't go to the mountain. Let me go to this little city here. And he said, all right, fine. Go to that little city. That one's not going to be destroyed. Verse 22, haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. And the sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain. And all the inhabitants of the cities, and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord, and he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the plain, and beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. You know, the amazing thing is, is, is God's basically doing this for Abraham's sake. Abraham loved Lot so much, it was his family, loved Lot so much that God saved Lot for Abraham's sake. But you know, could you imagine what Lot must have thought as they were running out of the city and saw that his wife turned into a pillar of salt? Could you imagine what must have gone through Lot's mind? I'm not sure exactly when he realized that she became a pillar of salt. She was behind him when they were running out of the city. And it says that. In verse number uh, 20, uh, 20, 26, but his wife looked back from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. Perhaps he looked back to check on her and God spared him because he wasn't looking at the city. He was only looking at his wife. I don't know. Perhaps he never knew until they were safely away from Sodom and Gomorrah that she wasn't even with them anymore. But either way, she looked back at the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and she was turned into a pillar of salt. What a tragic story. Why did she turn back? Why did she turn back? There's, you know, it's hard to tell. Some have suggested that she was actually from Sodom. And if you go back and read the few chapters before this, it never says anything when, when Lot and Abraham were together that Lot was married. It mentions Abraham and his wife, but it never mentions Lot and his wife. There's a very good possibility that Lot met his wife, which were never given her name, but there's a very good possibility that he met his wife in Sodom. And they ended up getting married and everything else, but we often assume that Lot brought his entire family to Sodom, but that's just an assumption. There's nothing that says that he brought a whole family there. And so uh, Lot raises, uh, you know, he, he marries a wife more than likely in Sodom. His kids are born in Sodom. That's all they know is the wickedness of that city. And so maybe she was looking back to see if, her, if any of her other family had decided to follow. Maybe she was looking to get... You know, I'm looking back to get one more look at this beloved city that she was leaving behind. But either way, she made the grievous mistake of ignoring the command. And she went in direct disobedience to the command that was given to them in verse number 17 from God. And she looked back. Now, we need to look at the command that we're given in Luke chapter 17. Turn over there. 
you know, everybody knows John 11.35. What's John 11.35? Jesus wept, right? Shortest verse in the entire Bible. Everybody knows John 11.35. This one in Luke chapter 17 only has three words. John chapter 17 in verse number 32. That's not right. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say John? I meant Luke. Luke, Luke, Luke. Luke 17. Luke 17. And verse number 32. Three simple words. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Do you know what we're given about Lot's wife in the Bible? Basically nothing. Except the fact that when they were running out of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, she turned and looked back. We only have one thing that we have to remember about Lot's wife. We don't have to remember her name. We don't have it. We don't have to remember anything else about her. We don't have anything else about her. The only fact that we're given to remember about Lot's wife is that she looked back. And it's so important that we, we, we remember the fact that Lot's wife looked back, then there must be an important message in there for us. And there is. What I want to share with you this morning is some reasons why, in remembering Lot's wife, we should not look back in our Christian life. Let's pray, and then we'll look at these things this morning. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you for this church. I thank you for these people that you've brought together here this morning. Undoubtedly, we're all here together for a reason. You have something for us this morning, and I think there's something in here for all of us. Whether it be a, a warning not to look back, whether it be a, uh, a, a warning to, to start looking forward again, I don't know. But there's something in here for every one of us this morning, and I pray that you would reveal it to us through the Holy Spirit as we listen, as I preach. Thank you for what you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want you to see is this, and you can turn over to Galatians, the book of Galatians chapter 3. One of the reasons why we should not look back in our Christian life is because there is much that we have been saved from. There is much that we have been saved from. Our life before salvation is characterized as the old man or the flesh. And you see that really throughout the book of Romans. You see that especially throughout the book of Galatians. The old man, the flesh, that, that which we fight against. The old man is the man that we used to be before we were made new in Jesus Christ. By the way, you still have that old man if you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You can never move forward in your Christian life if you're not a Christian. You can never see the blessings that come from being a Christian if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. But once we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we get rid of that old man and we become a new creature in Jesus Christ. That's the part of us that fights against our desire to do right. Our flesh does not want us to do right. Our flesh is, is, is us, the, the part of us that makes us want to sin. You know, why is it so much easier to do wrong? Why is, it so, why is it so hard to live a consistently godly life? Isn't when you get saved, everything just becomes perfect and you never sin again and you never have a desire to sin again? Of course not. That old man, that fleshly nature is still there. It's because we have that sinful nature called the flesh that is constantly fighting against the Holy Spirit in our lives, constantly fighting against us uh, and our calling as Christians to live for God. Paul uses what he knows about this, this warring in the soul to ask the church at Galatia a very important question. Look what he says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 3. Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? We've been saved from the flesh. 
We've been saved from the old man. We've been set free from living the life of the old man. Are you so foolish that you think that going back to the old man, going back to living the way that you used to live, that old lifestyle can do something for you spiritually? In other words, don't look back because of what you've been saved from. Now, John MacArthur is a very well-known speaker, very well-known preacher, and there are several things that I see as a problem with John MacArthur's doctrine that I wouldn't agree with him 100% on, but I like what he said about this. He said, the flesh is weak, and the Bible talks about that. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He said, the flesh is weak is not an excuse to sin. It's a warning not to sin. And that, you know, I believe that the problem is that too many Christians are abusing the doctrine of grace. Uh, in fact, turn over to Romans chapter 6. They have this idea in their minds that because they're saved from spending an eternity in hell, that it doesn't matter how they live their lives. Grace covers a multitude of sins. That seems to be the mantra that they live by. Well, I'm, I'm covered from those things. That, you know, I can't go to hell anymore because I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. There's no, there's no chance that I'm going to die and spend an eternity in hell, so I can live my life how I want to live it. Grace is going to cover those things. God will forgive those things because I've accepted him as my Savior, and he does. But look what the idea of grace is all about in Romans chapter 6. I wish we had time to read this whole chapter. We don't, so I'm going to kind of skip through and show you a couple verses. But look what it says in Romans chapter 6 in verse number 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? In other words, what he's saying is, should we just keep sinning because grace is going to keep covering those sins? No, he says, that's not what the point of grace is all about. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? If you've been saved from those sins, if you've been saved from the old man and are made a new man, how are you going to keep living in sin? Look what he says in verse number six. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And I think he says all of that to get us to this, these couple verses in verse number 12, 13, and 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. In other words, there's so many people that, that take this idea of, well, grace covers a multitude of sins. As long as I know that I'm saved, and as long as I'm going to heaven, then I can live how I want to, and grace is going to cover those sins. And grace does. But the whole purpose of grace is that since we're under grace, we ought to live as Christians. We ought not to look back and live as somebody that's not saved. We ought not to go back to those old lifestyles. We ought not to live like the person we were before Jesus Christ saved us. Grace covers those sins, but we should avoid sin and the old lifestyle at all costs. A lot of people that don't know Christ look at the Christian life as a series of nothing more than do's and don'ts. Do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. That's how they see the Bible. And, you know, they see Christianity as living in chains because of all the things that we can't do. You know, well, you can't drink, you can't smoke, you can't curse, you can't, you can't, you can't. And they fill in all the blanks with all these things that you can't do as a Christian. The truth is, I could do all of those things. If I wanted to go out and get drunk right now, I could do it. If I wanted to go out and smoke a pack of cigarettes all at the same time, I could do it. I probably couldn't. I'd probably hack my lungs out before I got through one of them, but I could do it if I wanted to. 
right? I could do all of those things. The, the difference is that I don't have to do those things. You think about somebody that's, that's addicted to nicotine, and they say, you know, how many times have you heard somebody say, boy, don't ever start smoking these things, right? Why is that? Because they're in chains to that nicotine. Somebody who says, boy, I wish I'd never taken the first drink of alcohol because they can't stay away from it. Why is that? They're in chains to those things. I'm not in chains to do the things that Jesus Christ calls me to do. I want to do those things because he saved me from everything else. But I don't have to. You see, I'm not in bondage to that lifestyle like all of those who are trapped in that endless search for meaning and happiness and peace. I only find in the bondage that constantly draws them back to those things. And Paul sums up perfectly what we've been saved from. You're in Galatians chapter 3. Look over the next chapter in Galatians chapter 4. And boy, I love this. First time I read this verse years ago now, it just, it grabbed me. And I go back to this thing often because of, of what Paul is saying in this verse. Look what he says in Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 9. But now... After that ye have known God, or rather are known of God. In other words, once you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, once you're His, once you know Him, once He knows you, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? You know what he's saying? You've been set free from all of those things. You don't have to live in bondage to sin. Why would you put your hands back in bondage to those things that you've already been freed from? It's, it's as foolish as somebody getting a pardon and walking out of jail and taking three steps into freedom and looking around and saying, you know what, freedom's not for me. Here, put me back in jail. You'd think, what's wrong with that guy? You got your freedom. Go live your life. Don't you realize what you have when you have your freedom, when you're not bound by four walls and, and, and chains, Right? But that's exactly what we do so many times as Christians. We've been set free from all of those things. How turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements wherein ye desire to be in bondage? Why would you do that? Why would you turn back in your Christian life after what you've been saved from? Don't look back because of what you've been saved from, but also don't look back because there is yet much work to do. Turn over to Luke chapter 9. The world is likened in many places in the Bible to a harvest. Jesus says the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. He says, send laborers into the harvest. Luke 9, Jesus gave a lesson on true discipleship. And again, we don't have time to go into this whole passage or read the whole passage. But essentially what happens in Luke chapter 9 is a man comes to Jesus and says that he's willing to follow Jesus anywhere. And then another man comes and says, I'm willing to follow you anywhere. And when Jesus says, all right, follow me, then both of them came up with excuses. One of them said, well, I have to go bury my father. Another one said, well, I got to go tend to my, to my lands before I follow you. And Jesus gives them this strong statement in Luke chapter 9 and verse 62. And Jesus said unto him, no man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I think we can easily apply this to somebody who wants to go to heaven but is not willing to give up his sin, his worldly lifestyle, to forsake all of those things, to come to Jesus Christ and to accept Jesus Christ as his Savior. But I believe we can also apply this to Christians. He was saying that you're not fit for God's work if you look back. 
doesn't mean that God could never use you. But if you put your hand to the plow, if you start serving God and then you look back and start giving up on all of those things that you were doing in service to God, you're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. You're not fit to do God's work. That's a strong statement. Uh, I, I think there's a strong allusion to Lot's wife in this passage. And Jesus didn't, you know, didn't specifically talk about Lot's wife. But I think Jesus was just saying is if you have a desire to follow me and to reap the benefits of those who do follow me, then you cannot be looking back to a worldly lifestyle. You cannot be looking back and to try to live the life that you lived before you became a Christian and, and have that hankering after it. The idea of putting your hand to the plow is someone who, who is intent on doing his job, right? You put your hand to the plow, when those mules start walking, you're, you're plowing, you're going. You can't just stop and turn around and walk away. You, you've got to get that, you know, you've got to keep that plow in the ground. You've got to keep moving forward. That's what the idea of plowing a field is all about. He's not looking back with regret that he undertook that job. And this is exactly what Jesus is trying to get across in our spiritual lives. If you're going to serve him, Serve him with your whole heart. If you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, still loving the world, still looking with regret on the pleasures that you had to give up, still looking at the wealth that maybe you had to give up, still looking at the, the worldly honors that you gave up, then you're not fit to be called a servant of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. And I know that's strong language, but that's not me saying it. That's God saying that. No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of heaven. I find it so interesting how the Bible interprets the difference between where our loyalties lie. In fact, look over at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And you, you've read this verse many, many times before. Most of you have probably memorized it before. Matthew chapter 6 is right in the middle of the, the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to get to that in, in probably just a few weeks when it comes to uh, going through the Sermon on the Mount and, and preaching through that. But notice what Jesus says here. No man can serve two masters. Does it sound familiar? For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. But look at the two choices between where our loyalties lie. You cannot serve God and mammon. You know what he says? He's not saying you can't serve God and the devil at the same time. He's not giving us a choice between serving God or serving the devil. The word mammon means wealth or treasures or riches. He says the choice is between God and things. Because so many people are drawn away after those things that they give up serving God. He says you can't have both. You either love and serve God or you love and serve things and riches and wealth and all of that stuff. So many people are drawn away by that, that God says we have to choose between God and things. It's a very interesting dynamic. We, all, we always think, well, you got the choice between serving God or the devil. You, you have a choice. And yeah, the, it, you know, it is serving the devil when you choose to go after those things. But I think it's very interesting that God gave us the difference in that way. You're either serving God or you're serving things and pleasures and wealth and all of that stuff. Serving Christ is everything or nothing. It's everything or nothing. A person that's not willing to sacrifice everything for the cause of Christ is really willing to sacrifice nothing. Don't look back because of what you've been saved from. Don't look back because there's yet much work to do. And lastly, don't look back because there's a reward waiting for us in heaven. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. 
another verse that you're familiar with, but I think in, in the light of, of what we're talking about with remembering Lot's wife and not looking back, this fits so well into here, the fact that God has a reward for us in heaven if we serve him without looking back. Look what he says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, we have to forget past failures. The devil is going to try to remind you where you failed, maybe before you were saved, maybe after you were saved. He's going to try to remind you where you've messed up. He's going to try to remind you where things got derailed, maybe, in your Christian life, and that you can't be useful to God because of, look what you have in your past. Songwriter said it this way, when Satan reminds me of things I regret, I bring up Calvary lest he forget. And that's exactly what it is. The blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary covers all of those things that are in your past. And we ought to forget the things that are in the past. He says it very plainly. I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. Past failures cannot determine our future success for God. But we also have to forget our past victories. You know, there's a lot of Christians that want to live on what they did yesterday for God. Well, we like to focus on forgetting those things that are behind. Don't let, don't let the devil tell you to, you know, to, to remember all of these things that that. God already took care of. Don't, don't let the devil remind you of all the things in your past that you think are in the way that make it so that you can't serve God. But he doesn't say forgetting those things in your past, forgetting those things which are behind that were bad. He says forgetting those things which are behind. So yes, I think that talks about our past failures that we ought to forget about, but we ought to forget about our past victories too. So many Christians, I think, dwell on things they used to do for God. Uh, that's living in the past. That's looking back in the Christian life. Hey, nothing wrong with talking about the things that God did through us. Hey, when I, when I did this, I was able to lead this person to Christ. When I did this, I was able to do that, and, and God really worked in this way and that way. And I think that's part of being thankful is talking about the things that God's done in us and through us and for us. But if all we're doing is focusing on the past, then we're missing the whole point of what it means to be a Christian and not look back. We shouldn't be looking back at the things that, that we failed on, but we shouldn't be looking back at our past victories either. Forget those past failures. Forget those past victories and look forward to the prize that God has for you to win. There's so many more victories. There's so many more blessings. There's so many more rewards that God wants to give you, but you can't win them by looking back. You can only win them by looking forward and by pressing toward that mark. My dad was here a few weeks ago, and uh, most of you, if, if Probably all of you got to meet him, but he likes to uh, he likes to watch like running videos. Uh, he ran track in high school, and and so I, I actually have uh, running is really big in our family. I've I've done a lot of running myself. I've got a couple of cousins that are you know uh, number one, two, three at University of Michigan, and you know they're they're really fast fast runners in cross country and track and all this stuff. And so my dad stays really interested in those things, and so. Um, when he was here just a couple weeks ago, he showed me a video of an indoor track meet, and I, I don't know if it was high school or college. I'm not exactly sure which one it was, but it was, um, it was, it was a, a longer meet. You know, uh, it's not just, it was like four laps around the track, which is equivalent to about a mile. And 
one, one, uh, one runner, I, I don't know his name, I, I don't know any of the names of these people, but one of the runners had gotten way out in front of everybody. And they, they kind of came around to this last lap, and you had one, one runner way out in front of everybody, and then kind of a pack that were, that were pretty close to each other. And one of the guys that was near the back of the pack, as they started around that, that, uh, the corner for that last lap, he, you could tell that he had been saving up for, for this last push. And he passed all of the runners that were in that pack, and he started to close the distance between him and the guy that was in first place. And, I mean, it was, it was not even close. I mean, it was, it was a miracle would have to happen for this guy to be able to pass him and, and win. But he just, he turned on the steam. And as they made the, you know, kind of that final corner around toward the home stretch, he was closing that distance. And, the, and of course, the announcers are getting all excited. And you can just, I mean, you can almost hear him without even hearing him. You know, they're, he's coming up and now he's, you know, he's, he's, he's making his push. And now the distance is closing and all of this stuff. And, and then the announcer said something. He, he pointed out something that, that this runner that was in first place did. And he said, oh, he just made his first mistake. He looked behind him. Sure enough, that runner that was in second place closed that distance and at the last, at the last step reached forward and ended up beating that young man in the race. And the announcers talked about that at the end, and they said if he had not looked behind him, he probably would have won that race. But when you turn around and you look back, especially in a fast race like that, it throws off your rhythm, it throws everything off just enough that you lose half a second, maybe a second, and in a race like that, a half a second is the difference between first and second place. And you know, the only way to effectively press toward the mark is to continue to look forward and to avoid looking back. The interesting thing about Lot's wife is that she was turned into a pillar of salt. She didn't drop dead on the spot. She wasn't hit with, you know, uh, sparks or ash that were flying out of Sodom and Gomorrah and burned up. She was turned into a pillar of salt uh, that would be left as a memorial to every other person who disobeys God and looks back. I, in my Bible, I have a picture of the pillar that's traditionally known as Lot's wife, Brother Josh. That is the pillar that's known as Lot's wife. And for centuries, centuries, people have been going to visit that spot. Josephus was a, uh, a writer, a historian during the time of Christ. And he wrote about the fact that he went to see this pillar of salt known as Lot's wife. God could have made it very easy for her to just die and rot away just like anybody else. He turned her into a pillar that would always be there as a memorial. And that's why hundreds of years later he can say in the New Testament, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. God left Lot's wife there as a stark reminder to, to us not to do what she did. Lot's wife looked back. And it's something that we would do well to avoid. Don't look back because of what you've been saved from. Don't look back because there is yet much work to do. Don't look back because there's a reward waiting in heaven. Christians who fail in their Christian life are the ones who stop pressing forward, the ones who stop trying to accomplish for God, 
and they start looking back, either because they're looking back at the old lifestyle, and boy, I had so much fun back in those days, and they start going back to that, or they just start looking back at all the things they used to do for God, and it keeps them from doing anything for, for God now. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Don't look back. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for your word and for the things that we can learn from it. And God, I pray that you'd help us to get this. We'd remember Lot's wife. And the fact that the mistake that she made was that she disobeyed God's command not to look back. And now for generations and generations and generations, we have a memorial of a woman who looked back. God, I pray that you'd help each one of us in here this morning to make sure that we don't look back in our Christian lives. And I pray that if there is somebody in here this morning that's not saved, that they would accept you as their Savior this morning so they can begin that same journey that, that so many of us are on as Christians. I pray that you'd speak to hearts this morning as only you can. We'll thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand at your seats, if you would, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I don't know how the... Holy Spirit's used this in your life, but if he has, and the invitation is open, you can come.